It was almost unbelievable. West Germany won, Algeria two. Africans weathered the storm. Their victory became meaningless in most controversial circumstances. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of a series of shows on World Football Index that explores some of the most important, interesting and influential stories in world football. In this week's edition, we move out of South America and fly all the way across to North Africa to discuss the historic campaign of Algeria in 1982, which featured a controversy that would change the way the World Cup was played forever. Joining me to discuss this topic are two experts on all things Algerian football. First up is Maher Mazay. You may have heard him on the BBC World Football phone-in in the past year or so. He's a fine journalist covering Af- African football for a number of outlets. How are you doing, Maher? Yeah, doing well, uh, staying confined like everyone else and uh, watching as much old football as I can to sort of pass the time. Cool. And also joining us is Walid Ziani, a journalist that has contributed to the BBC as well as outlets such as ESPN and Al Jazeera. Welcome, Walid, to the show. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. Um, Well, before we get into the World Cup matches of 1982, shall we take a look at how Algeria got to Spain? They qualified for this World Cup by putting an impressive run of results together in in qualifying. This was the first ever World Cup that they had qualified for. Um, The the result which really um, stuck out to me... Mahir in, in qualifying was was the home uh, was the away win against Nigeria. Many sides in international football go away and, and, and beat Nigeria. Is is that a win which is still um, talked about to this day in in Algerian football culture? Yeah, in Algeria and in in Nigeria as well. Uh, I had a, a, few, a number of Nigerian journalists mention that 1980 match to me uh, at the Africa Cup of Nations in 2019 in Egypt. Um, it's something that actually uh, they still remember very well. They're very familiar with that Algerian team because before Algeria had played against Nigeria in 1982 World Cup qualifying, in the final playoff uh, home and return leg to go to the World Cup, there was actually uh, an Africa Cup of Nations tournament in 1980 in Nigeria as well. And um, Nigeria were the champions and they beat Algeria in the final of that tournament. So there was a little bit of a, of a rivalry there between Uh, That Nigerian generation, which, according, again, to a lot of Nigerian journalists, probably doesn't get the credit they deserve compared to, like, the the 90s generation, the 90s Nigerian golden generation. Uh, But if you talk to, again, a lot of old-time Nigerian journalists, they'll tell you that that 80s generation was just as good, if not better, than the 90s generation. So that was definitely uh, one of the most impressive results, I think, in Algerian football in history, is going to... Nigeria and getting that 2-0 victory before before winning again at home. And just to add a bit of, uh, maybe a bit of background, but also those two teams faced each other in the 1978 All-Africa Games. So the All-Africa Games are now, uh, now it's a U23 tournament, and I don't even know if they still, if, they, if it's taken very seriously anymore, but back then it was a major tournament where the national teams used to play. Um, it's basically the Olympics for for Africa. And they met, met each other in the finals in 1978, a game played in Algiers. And a lot of the, well, not a lot, but some of those players that played in the 1978 game also played again in the 1980 and then again in the 1981 uh, qualifiers. So there was a lot of history. Uh, the two teams knew each other very well because they basically played each other four times in the space of, 
or actually I think it was even five times in the space of uh, three, four years. So okay, cool. And and some of the other victories on the on the way there, you know, they they beat Sierra Leone, Sudan, Nigeria. Um, were were these matches matches that Algeria were expected to win? Did Algeria go into these set of qualifiers as one of the favourites to go to the World Cup? Well, I, I don't know if we could say that Algeria were expected to win a lot of those matches because, as you mentioned, um, this was really the fourth time Algeria had entered FIFA World Cup qualifying. Uh, and the past campaigns were very, very painful. So Algeria was independent in 1962. And then in 1966, all African nations actually boycotted uh, the FIFA World Cup, the one in, that England won. Um, because that they were angry that they only got one, uh, that they didn't get an automatic qualification berth. Uh, they had to qualify and then play a playoff. I think I believe against an Asian team to secure uh, qualifying. So all African nations boycotted in 1966. So Algeria's real first qualifying campaign came in 1970. So you had 1970, 1974, and 1978. Three World Cup qualifying, three World Cup qualifications, and three major disappointments. Um, this especially, especially coming on the back of uh, one of probably one of the best, uh, I would say, generation of footballers that the continent has ever seen, uh, the FLN team, which was created in 1958. It's a team of, to, to make a long story short, it's a team of um, professional Algerian footballers that were playing in France that left their clubs right before the 1958 World Cup and uh, created their own national team before Algeria was even independent. They were based out of Tunis and they would travel and tour the world uh, raising plate for uh, Algerian for the Algerian independence movement. So that was a really, really great squad of players. They had several players that probably could have made uh, the 1958 French World Cup team, the team that made it to the semifinals uh, and lost to an 18-year-old Pelé. So that was a great team. And everybody had those that in mind when they thought of the Algerian national team because they would go, they would beat Morocco, they would beat Tunisia, they, would, uh, they had a positive results. Yugoslavia and Romania, everywhere. And people were expecting Algeria to live up to that standard. But immediately after independence, uh, things were not as organized, not as disciplined. And so those three World Cup qualification campaigns were very, very disappointing. And so in 1982, for them to finally make it, it was like such a... I, I wouldn't say that we were expected to win those matches, but it was a, a real relief when we did. So also just to give, a, again, just to add to what Mahed was saying, um, from 1963, when we played our first international uh, international match to 19 to the 1982 World Cup qualifiers, we only played in two uh, African Cups. So the 1968 African Cup in Ethiopia, where I think we won one game and didn't come out, didn't uh, make it out of the group stage, and then the 1980 African Cup where we reached the final. So. In terms of being an African powerhouse, it wasn't the case just yet. However, uh, leading up to the 1982 FIFA World Cup qualifiers, there was definitely a generation of players that had a lot of potential. Uh, so again, 1978, we won the All-Africa Games. Um, a few of the players that were on that team, they were younger, but they were they would eventually go on to play at the 82 World Cup. So Majer, Saad, uh, Kouissi, and Sarbat, the goalkeeper. Um, Again, 1980, we reached the African Cup, but also the quarterfinals of the Olympics. So a lot of people don't mention the Olympics, uh, but we qualified for the 1980 Olympics. And uh, three of the players on that team uh, were Bulumi, Maja, and uh, Assad. So those are three of the key players that were at the 82 World Cup. 
1981, uh, J.S. Kabidi won the African Cup. Um, and the captain of that team was the captain of the 1982 FIFA World Cup team, which is uh, Alif Agheni. Uh, he, he, I think he started all three games, but he definitely started against Germany, that's for sure. And 1981 was also the year that Bellumi was chosen as the African Player of the Year. So I think there was, uh, th- there was hope and excitement, uh, but also keeping in mind that there was only two spots for Africa. Uh, so it was always going to be very difficult. But I think, I wouldn't say we were the favorites to qualify, but we were definitely uh, in the conversation. I mean, there was definitely talent and it was exciting time uh, in Algerian football. And actually one game that I forgot was in the 1980 uh, Olympic qualifiers. And I think this is the first major win for Algerian football. Uh, we played against Morocco in Casablanca. Um, it was the final game before, uh, it was the final game for the qual- final uh, matchup for a spot at the Olympics and Morocco, it was a full house at their stadium in Casablanca. I think even their, their, uh, their King was there and Algeria shocked them, beating them five, one, uh, again, and four of the goal scorers, again, not an easy place to go. So, you know, this really shows the, the metal of this Algeria side, doesn't it? It, it? Exactly. And I think six or seven of those players that played in that 1979 qualifier against Morocco would go on to play at the world cup. So, Benzhaula, he scored three goals in that game, and then Assad scored one of the goals, and and both of them went to the World Cup, and of course there was Belumi, Fergani, Kwisi, Gendouz, a, a lot of those guys. So, the the uh, again, we weren't maybe the favorites, but we were definitely uh, up there in terms of uh, qualifying to the World Cup. And maybe one of you would just like to explain to to people who might not be aware. Yeah, this is obviously well before kind of the real globalization of football anyway, but I believe that this Algeria side was completely um, made up of players playing in Algeria. Is that is that correct? No, there was no, no we had, uh, I think, four or five players that were playing in Europe. Uh, some of them were from Algeria, so they were born and raised in Algeria and then just moved to France to continue their careers. But a couple of them were, were born in France. So off the top of my head, uh, Nordin Qureshi, uh, tall uh, defender midfielder, and also Mansori, Fauzi Mansori. Both of those guys were either born in France or grew up in France. And I think there was a couple of others on the team as well. Yeah, and one, one other major uh, player that we should mention is Mustafa Dahlet, uh, who played in the 1982 World Cup. Probably, and to this day, he remains one of the better players that ever played for Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, Walid might know uh, where he figures on, on the goal, all-time goal-scoring charts at the club, but I think it's in the top five, definitely in the top ten. Um, he was really, I think, the first um, Algerian superstar playing in Europe after independence. So Algeria was never... We, from a from a globalized a globalization perspective, Algeria was always one of I think the national teams, and this remains true until this day. But it's always been a national team that's always had some sort of international, no. I guess you could say European appeal, uh, because as as you mentioned earlier, in 1958 there were uh, 20 to 30 French, I'm uh, oh, sorry, Algerian players playing in France, um, and then that just sort of carried over. So this this team in 1982 though was vastly the, major, the vast majority of players were playing in Algeria. There were definitely uh, four or five players um, that were playing in, in, in French leagues. Yeah, sorry, I, I got I'd got confused with, with with another piece that I'd read, which had stated that basically um, any players under the age of twenty seven weren't allowed to move out of Algeria. Yeah, they needed a presidential decree 
to allow them to go play abroad. So that's why that's why some players like Belumi, who is considered by many to be one of to, to be the best play, Algerian player of all time, he never played abroad, even though he had uh, offers from like Juventus and some other major clubs. Yeah, I was reading that. Yeah, post the '82 World Cup, he he was set for a move to to Italy, and it sort of mysteriously broke down at the last minute. He he also got injured uh, right before uh, he was set to move to Juventus. So that didn't help his case. But yeah, in general, uh, players basically needed uh, the president's uh, approval to go play abroad. Which I don't think was very um, uncommon uh, during that time period. It was pretty much the case in a lot of countries across the continent in Africa. I think there might have been some variations on the age limit. It might not have been 27 or 28. But that was definitely the case for, for a lot of countries on the continent. Okay, and as, as we mentioned earlier, this is 20 years after Algeria gained their independence from France. How important would you say that qualifying for this World Cup was to kind of Algerian identity, if that's the right phrasing? Yeah, so what's, what's really interesting about this generation of players that really, really made a splash in the international arena when it comes to uh, Algeria um, is that they were really the first generation of players that grew up in an independent Algeria. Um, you know, the generation before them probably grew up during, in the last, you know, five, ten years of colonization. So these were as these were pure products of the Algerian system. And that's what I think made them a little special and that's why I think a lot of people were extra proud of this team. When I speak to, I spoke to a journalist, um, a well-known journalist here in Algeria who who just told me that at the time Algeria, you know, it was 1982, we had just gone through a decade in the 70s of, of hardline socialism where the country was more closed up, closed up on itself and now Algerians were just sort of trying to um, open up to the world, prove that, you know, that they were competent, that they were, there was a young generation. Um, ready to, to communicate, to interact. Um, and proof of that is that there were, you know, tens of thousands of Algerians that made the trip over to Spain and they were, you know, just like eager to share what it, what it means to be Algerian and who Algerian people are. Um, so it was definitely, I think, like an optimistic period for, for a lot of young Algerians. And this team really, I think for me, kept, uh, encapsulated that. Uh, that generation was definitely uh, the generation of Algerian footballers that put Algeria on the map. Because until then, uh, any Algerian players that were famous uh, were playing, uh, you know, played for France. Uh, guys like, I don't know if Mkhloufi played for France, but he was uh, one of the biggest uh, Algerian players uh, before independence and even after independence. Uh, but this was the first, uh, like Maher said, this is the first generation of players that were a product of Alger- of an independent Algerian nation. So they definitely... Uh, they're very highly, very highly remembered. Yeah. So Algeria qualified for Spain '82, as we've mentioned, by by getting some impressive results in 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 the years leading up to to qualif- to, to making it to, to Spain '82. Um, but we should also point out here that Mahia, that Africa was quite judged, wasn't it, on, on the world stage still at still at this point, and certainly there was lots of question marks hanging over. Uh, the worth of African teams um, in 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 the World Cup, mainly because you know their development had been so stunted um, under Stanley Rouse, the, the FIFA president for, for for many years. They weren't given 
um, you know, a fair chance in in a lot of people's opinion at the time, and and certainly looking back now, it, it looks a disgrace just how long Africa had to wait before they were given just two spots at the World Cup, which is what happened in '82. But given Zaire's performance in '74, you know that their their poor performance kind of um, you know left a left a bit of a um, poor mark and a big question mark over our Africans teams at, at the World Cup. Although Tunisia did get a win in 78, a fellow North African team there, and, and, that, and that seemed to prove a lot of the doubters wrong. And then what Algeria would go on to do, along with Cameroon, who were, who were unbeaten in 82, really kind of started to establish African sides at the World Cup, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think... I th- actually, I'll, I'd make the argument that I'll, Africa is still underrepresented, I think, at the FIFA World Cup. Um, I think five teams is too little. And it's something that I think the continent's had to deal with since countries uh, first obtained their independence. Um, as you mentioned, 1970, uh, 1970, first of all, we can start with 1970. I think that was the first draw that an African, na- first point an African nation managed Morocco. to win. Morocco. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. And they had a really good team. And I think they surprised people. Uh, with sort of their organization and, um, and and their technical ability. 74, if you really look at, you know, 70, 74, 78, 82, 74 is really the, the odd man out. No, it's, it's not really, I think, representative of the quality that was on the continent. Zaire was a good team. They had a horrific tournament. Nobody can, can dispute that. But they were actually quite a good team. They had won uh, a lot of... African Cup of Nations. They won, I think, a couple African Cup of Nations at the time, and they had quite a few good players that were playing in Europe uh, throughout the 1960s. So, um, I think they were. Yeah, Africa was definitely underrepresented at the time, and, and I think that remains the case today. So, uh, as you mentioned, 1978 was the first win at a at a cup of, at a World Cup. Tunisia beating Mexico three one or three 0 I think it was three one, and then 1982. What you see from 1978 really until 1990 is steady progression from African national team. So you have 78, the first win. So we'll say 70, the first point. Yeah, 78, the first win. 82, you have the first team to get two wins, Algeria. And you also have the first team to lose no matches in Cameroon. 86, you have the first team to make it to the second round, Morocco. And, and then you also have like that those teams, that those Cameroonian teams of, the, of you know, 1990, which quarterfinals uh, nearly beat England, probably should have beat England. And so you have like really steady progression. Um, and I think for me, that really solidifies the argument that not only was African development, African football developing at a very quick pace, but also that I think we're upper, underrepresented in the, in the, in the 70s and 80s. So on to the first match of this World Cup. And, and it was huge shock, wasn't it? Um, Algeria went into the into into the game facing West Germany. West Germany had won the World Cup in '74. You know, so just eight years earlier. Um, you know, at that point they were already two times champions of the world, so they were huge favourites um, going into the game. And this is reflected by the fact, you know, the, there was a lot of confidence, and I think. In, on reflection, it was um, unfounded arrogance um, from the German players heading into the game. One of them said, we will dedicate our seventh goal to our wives and the eighth to our dogs. So 
I, I was looking at a couple of interviews with with Algerian players um, in, in in recent years who have who have now said you know they they had read comments like this going into the game and had used it as motivation. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and also about just how how this match unfolded from an Algerian perspective. Well, b- before we get into the game, uh, I-, I just want to maybe make people aware of that to prepare for the 1982 World Cup, uh, the Algerian national team played 20 friendlies from the moment they qualified. So they qualified in October of 1981, between October 1981 and June 1982. So that roughly eight, nine months, the Algerian national team played 20 friendlies and they played against the likes of Real Madrid, Benfica, Lyon, uh, Atletico Mineiro from Brazil. Uh, They also played against Peru, Ireland, Tunisia, and they had the African Cup in between that in March. So they had another four matches during that African Cup. So in total, 20 friendlies and four matches, four competitive matches at the African Cup. So 24 matches uh, to prepare for the World Cup. So it was basically like taking a very well-oiled machine to the World Cup. Players that knew each other very well. And uh, Bulumi and Assad and Majad were playing together since 1974 in different national teams. So these guys knew each other very well. Um, in a recent interview, uh, Bulumi said that we knew each other by heart. Like we would already know where players were. Uh, before we, we didn't have to look, we just knew exactly where they would be. And when you watch the game and you watch the way they played, it was definitely reflected by, by the football that was played, um, especially on the, uh, on the second goal, the equalizer. Yeah. So fluid. Yeah. yeah and I think, um, just to answer the question, I mean, there's every time I, I read up or I, or I, you know, watch highlights or I read up on the, on this match in particular, I hear a new quote that was attributed to some German player or, or a pundit, or a few days ago, I was reading a book, and they said that Franz Beckenbauer had um, recently retired and had become a commentator for I think for German television, and he went to um, he went to where the, where the Algerian camp was staying in their villa, and he actually uh, just like like knocked on the door and made sure, hey, you guys are the Algerian national team, right? And just to I think to uh, the, the point of, of them citing the quote is to say, like, look, we're so disrespected, they didn't even know who we were. Even Franz Beckenbauer didn't even know who we were. So, again, every time you hear, like, you know, Jörg Derwal, the coach said, oh, if we lose this game, I'm going to take the first train back home to Germany. I don't know. I think, first of all, I think some of these are exaggerated. Um, but I think playing up the fact that uh, Germany uh, really took Algeria lightly, which I think they did. But playing that up also takes takes some credit away from this Algerian national team, which was really, really very good. Um, like Walid said, he's, he's stressed like a few times now. This was a generation of players that would re- that really came up through the ranks together, from you know, the, the very from youth categories to the senior national team. They were they knew each other well. They, they had played very good opposition before in the 1980 Olympics, uh, in the 1978 All African Games. Uh, they were. Uh, very well coached by Mahidin Khalif, who for me is probably one of the best Algerian coaches that's ever, ever existed. Probably one of the best African coaches, I would say. Top, definitely top five or top ten. And so I think, honestly, I believe that if they played this match ten times, I think Germany would have won a majority of them. But it's not a one in a million result. I think this probably could have happened, you know, two or three times out of ten. So I think the, 
to, I think playing up that sort of the fact that Germany was taking them lightly sometimes takes away from the credit that this Algerian national team gets. I think this Algerian national team very easily deserves to go to the second round and how far they could have went if they did. Yeah, so for those who don't know exactly how that match unfolded, um, yeah, it was nil-nil at half-time, and then Madja gives Algeria the lead, um, following up a Bulumi shot, um, which was which was well saved. Um, then Rummenigge on 67 minutes equalises for West Germany. But then Algeria put together what must be one of the moves of the tournament to go back in front, and, and Bulumi finishes it off. Um, but that but that move was was fantastic football, wasn't it? So fluid, like you say, you know, really showcasing this Algeria side at their best. It was eleven passes right off the uh, right off the restart. So as soon as Germany scored, we got the ball uh, right off the restart. Eleven passes. They worked it uh, back to the midfield, to the left wing, down the left wing, crossed it, and then Bulumi uh, capped it off. Beautiful football that basically summed up Algerian football of the uh, of the 80s and, and really Algerian football in general. That's that's the way it's played. Uh, one touch, very technical, with a lot of movements and, and a lot of pace. I think that's definitely one of the the tactics that Mahidin Khalif had employed during that game. He actually played with a false nine, which is which is kind of interesting. Jamal Zidane is usually seen as more of an attacking midfielder, though he played uh, as, he deputized as a striker really. But he wasn't your you know stereotypical striker that. You know, is very physical, great in the air, um, plays great with his back towards goal. He's more of, I think, an attacking midfielder. Um, and Jamal Zidane was playing as a striker. And then on the wings, you have Salah Hassad and Rabah Majer, two very, very good dribblers with an eye for a goal who are very, very quick as well. So I think the, the plan was always for Jamal Zidane to, to come down. And you see in that match, if you watch closely, number 14, Jamal Zidane will drop down into midfield a number of times, pick the ball up, and distribute to try to send, you know, Assad and Majer into space. So I think uh, trying, the, people, I think, tend to gloss over the fact that they were very well coached. This is not only a great technical side, but it was also a very well drilled side. I think they had the perfect game plan to, to foil Germany. One player that really caught my eye when I was watching, especially the Germany game back, and I, and I believe that he got man of match on, um, on various TV stations, um, who who were covering this game and 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 that was Shabane Merzikane, who is nominally a right back, um, and and his performance, you know, really stood out. Uh, a marauding uh, fullback, I'd say, although you know, a, a modern a modern day right back <laughs> to me in in these games, the way that he got forward and and supported the attacks. Yeah, and this was a time, I think, before the modern fullback, you know, and I think even Shaban Rassan, he was definitely, I think the marauding is the perfect adjective, really. He's definitely, a, to, uh, sorry, definitely a right fullback that liked to get forward and, and join the attack. But it wasn't really in, in the way that I think modern fullbacks do, where they get up positionally, you know, they'll, they'll get very wide and they'll, they're practically at times, you know, on the edge of the 18, whipping in crosses. For him, it was he was starting. He wasn't get running up and then receiving a pass in the attacking half. He was starting, you know, 80-90% of the time he was starting in his own half. And he'd pick up the ball, and he just <laughs> he really reminds me of I think uh, a kind of I think would be a fair comparison is Yusuf Atal, the current uh, Algerian right back, and that they almost sometimes I don't know how to explain this, but they don't, I would say they almost play with no no handbrake, no yeah, sense of oh my God, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, you know, my man behind me. I'm leaving a, a gaping hole behind me. And it, it really works. 
uh, in the sense that I think that the, the opposing team is so mystified and so stunned that this guy, this right back is taking off at full speed and is dribbling past everybody that uh, he, he ends up succeeding with his dribbles. So definitely a great player and, and a product of, of, again, that school of Algerian football in the 1970s and into the 1980s that was producing so many great players. Um, he, I believe he came from, um, Walid can sorry, confirm with me, but I think he came from Nahd. Uh, same, same club as Rabah Majer, as Mahmoud Kandouz, who started in, as center half that day as well. And Ali Fergani as well. So all four of those guys uh, came from that. But just to add uh, to uh, Maher's point about, about the position of our players, um, these last few weeks, obviously, we've been stuck at home. So a lot of us have been going back and watching older games. And one thing I noticed about old games, especially when I'm trying to make out who like, because a lot of the, the the picture quality of a lot of the videos is not the greatest. So a lot of times when I'm trying to make out who the players are, I notice that there's a lot of uh, fluidity to the positions of players. And, and I don't know if this was a tactical choice by the, by the coaches, but sometimes I would see Maja, who's, who's supposed to be playing on the wing, dropping all the way back to where, say, a number six, like a defensive midfielder would be just to get the ball. And, and you see players um, all over the place. And it really sums up the Algerian footballer. Um, a lot of them don't have any real uh, position, tactical, like in modern football. Tactical you, discipline. Is that, uh, uh, not, not well. Tactical discipline is one thing, but also, um, you know, growing up, you some coaches put players into position. So you're a right back, you're a midfielder, you're a winger, you're a striker. Uh, one thing I noticed with those players is is they could play literally anywhere. You could put Maja as a striker. You could put him as a winger. You could put him a, a, as a midfielder. And even our defenders, a lot of times you would see our center backs take the ball and try to dribble their way out of the back, make runs forward. So I think uh, it, it really encapsulates the, the Algerian footballer. Uh, the versatility. Man. Versatility, yeah. That, that's a good word to sum it up. And, and of course, Murzkan, the player that you mentioned, is no different. Um, you, you know, he's running up and down, up and down the field. And, he, he was a hothead, by the way. He, was, he had a huge temper. I think he one time, uh, there, was a, there was a few brawls I think he was involved in, but one of the times he picked up a corner flag and started chasing up the opposition with it, so... Uh, he was uh, as crazy as his play really uh, mentally he seems as crazy as his play was So, but definitely a, a great option to have I think on the right flank and I would say probably since then we haven't really had a great right back until probably Yusuf Atal so uh, right back has always been a problem Algeria struggled with but he was definitely one of the better ones there was a song as well wasn't there from around this time, do either of you know it, or was that very much of its of of its time? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very popular song that they still play, even in the stadiums. I think they still play it. Yeah, it's called Jibuha uh, Yaluled. I think we're referring yeah. to the same it, song. It just translates to uh, "Go get it." Kid. So after that 
amazing victory over over West Germany. They then went on five days later to lose 2-0 to Austria. This game basically meant that two wins out of two for Austria, um, leaving them in kind of pole position in, in, in the group and Algeria needing a result against Chile. We'll we come on to that in a bit because that's where a lot of the controversy lies of course but what for you went wrong against Austria you know looking at some of the interviews with the players from from around this time and also post World Cup it seems that maybe after the victory against West Germany that took its toll both mentally and physically on the on these players so so Adam we would be remiss and I think this will tie very very well into your into your question but We'd be remiss if we don't mention the celebrations after that victory uh, against West Germany. Sure, um, I wasn't alive. I don't think I don't think Walid was. A, I wasn't alive. I don't think Walid was alive at the time. But no. it's something as an Algerian kid. Yeah, something as an Algerian kid. I think you can relate to this that we had probably heard about for for our entire lives. We grew up with names like Majer and Belumi. They immediately became national heroes. Um, it's been most commonly described as you know a second independence for Algeria. That that victory against West Germany. I'll just tell you an anecdote from the same journalist that I mentioned earlier. Uh, his name is Ehsan Al-Hadi. Um, and he told me that at the time he was a newlywed and he had just gotten married and he had received a bunch of wedding gifts, a lot of cash. And uh, he was a betting man. So he, his friend was telling him, look, we're going to be Germany. And he said, look, there's no way we're going to be Germany. He said, yeah, we're going to be Germany. And he said, all right, you want to bet on it? Sure. So the, the journalist that I know, he was, he was very skeptical he decided to bet all of his wedding all of the wedding gifts that he had received all the money uh on the fact that germany were going to win and he said like he was super stressed before the match but he was very conflicted you know i think that's what a lot of um betting people do is you bet against the opposition and either way you're a winner right <laughs> so, and uh and he said i was never so happy to lose my money um that really just my, my, my father told me that uh, him and his friends, they had painted the, the, the scoreline on, on the side of a donkey and had walked, you know, kilometers with it, uh, just celebrating. People were out on the streets, flags, everything. So you, I think we can't overstate how big of a deal this was for Algeria. It was the first time an African nation really defeated a, a European or a global superpower uh, at a major tournament. And for it to be Algeria was, was so meaningful. And so you were always, I think, going to have a hangover. It's like, you know, whenever a team wins a, a title or, or whatever, it, whatever it's going to be, it's always difficult to, I think, sometimes carry that momentum. When, I, when you read back the interviews that people talk about and, and, and everything, they often mention that they were tired. Some people say that some players say that they were tired. Some say that they underestimated the Austrians. Some say that the Austrians didn't underestimate them as opposed to the Germans. But I think it was just I think both sides were evenly matched. And I think Austria just capitalized on their chances uh, better than Algeria did. But I think Walid can probably touch up on that as too. No, I think I definitely agree. Um, I think it was pretty well balanced. But, you know, Austria got their chances and took them. Uh, from Algerian perspective, uh, the coach didn't change anything, I believe. He used the exact same starting 11 with the same uh, tactical approach. In the match against Germany, we had the element of surprise. So Germany uh, really didn't know what to expect from Algeria. Um, Austria obviously saw us beat Germany. So they, they knew... Uh, what to expect so I think uh, also their coach had the opportunity to you know get his players prepared so I also read that the Austria coach even before the World Cup had scouted this Algeria side and and had just prepared a lot more 
for for what was to come against them. That's true. That's true. Sorry to cut. Uh, Willie, do get right back to this, but that is true. Uh, George Smith, the Austrian coach, had actually scouted Algier at the 1982 uh, Afcon, and uh, was getting. He actually had. During those 20 friendlies that Wadid had mentioned, he actually had scouts in place in Algiers making notes on the Algerian national team. So they were much more prepared than the German side was. Yeah, and I think just the, the better team on the day one. I don't think, uh, I mean, fatigue might have been an issue, but I don't think uh, it, it was it, it was the reason we lost. And, and if you do watch the highlights or, or rewatch that match, you see that Algeria did have their chances as well. I believe we hit the crossbar once um, and just kind of wasteful in front of goal. Um, but we de- we definitely had our chances. So it's just one of those games that could have went either way. And, and I think Austria got, got the, we're better on the day. So yeah, not, not much to it. I don't think there's like a, a huge underlying reason why, why they beat Algeria. And then on to the third group game where all the controversy starts because it wasn't played at the same time as the last group game, um, the other, the other game in this group. So uh, between West Germany and Austria, that that wasn't played until the next day. So so this game was played on the 24th of June against the country dear to my heart, Chile. Um, and this was an absolutely terrible World Cup for 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 Chile, uh, the worst in the worst in their history uh, for sure. Um, yeah, and Algeria completely blew them away in the first half, a free goal lead. Um, and and this was a game where, um, you know, Balumi, the star man for for Algeria, um, I, I believe he he wasn't fit enough to to take part. Um, but yeah, two two fine goals from from Assad had yeah you know, really given Algeria control in this game. And it, and if they had hung on for for a three 0 win, that would have put them in, in an extremely strong position to qualify. But then they kind of let it slip a bit, didn't they? In the in the second half, Chile with absolutely nothing to play for and 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 a pretty poor World Cup, like I say, and that somehow managed to suddenly score two goals in what was a very sort of end to end second half, and and this ended up proving costly for Algeria for reasons we get onto in a minute. Um, but yeah, how how is this game seen in 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 Algeria, Mahi? Yes. For us, it's, I think it's a missed opportunity. Um, as you mentioned, going into the game, there were suspicions that you know the West Germans and the Austrians were gonna were were, were friendly, friendlier than usual. <laughs> there are even some Algerian photographers that stalked the two coaches and saw them having a conversation, and and they were probably just having a normal conversation, but they ended up making a, a big deal and writing newspaper articles about that fact. So. Um, we knew we had to win by three or four goals, probably. And as you mentioned, we couldn't have gotten off to a better start. 3-0 at halftime. Beautiful combination play, mostly uh, from Majer, Assad. And this time, the coach had made some changes. He included striker Taj Bin Saula, who, uh, who, who Walid mentioned earlier, um, a really good striker from Oran. And um, 3-0 at half, you think you're cruising, you're rolling. But I think if there was one major weakness of this Algerian national team, as we said, they were, they were, look, we were quick. We were very technical, had a good tactical coach. I think if there was one weakness with this Algerian national team, it's that could make some real mental lapses in defense. And the first Chilean goal came via penalty from just a really reckless tackle. And the second one from some very poor defending. So I think overall, uh, look, 3-2 was 
overall probably a positive scoreline, but it was never going to be enough uh, when the two sides that had yet to play, West Germany and Austria, uh, then they knew that they really didn't, <laughs> really didn't have to play uh, the following day. Yeah, from speaking to to some of the people that, that obviously watched, watched that game, uh, they definitely mentioned uh, complacency from the Algerian side at the half. So, you know, you're leading 3-0 after 35 minutes. Everything is going your way. You have, a, you, have a, you know, one foot into the next round. Uh, and then in the second half, it, it's a different team. You know, you give Chile, like you said, Adam, a team that's already knocked out that has nothing to play for. You let them come back into it by scoring two goals. So definitely uh, complacency. But like Maher said, one thing I noticed about this team that I've watched, you know, watching all these old games is the mental aspect, um, the lack of concentration. Um, and this is both defensively and offensively. Uh, some of the defensive mistakes, you know, players trying to play it out of the back or just simple passes. Um, they would try to make simple passes out of the back that would get intercepted, giving the other team's chances. But also up front, uh, I, I, I watched the game recently. Um, it was the year after the World Cup. It was Algeria versus Benin. It was a, a qualifier. And we scored six goals in that game. But when I watched the game, I think we could have scored maybe, and I'm not kidding, 13 or 14 goals. That's how many chances they made. And it, it seemed like they weren't, you know, they lacked that 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 killer instinct in front of goal and uh, I think that that really was what happened in the Chile game because I mean you're up 3-0 you can kill the game and end it but they, they lack that killer instinct maybe it's from lack of experience uh, but yeah we shot ourselves in the foot um, and gave Germany and Austria a chance to you know do what they did that everyone knows and I'm sure Adam you're going to get into now yeah so the next the next day, on the on the twenty fifth of June, West Germany and and Austria uh, are playing each other. Basically, um, you know, with the with the situation being that West Germany would need a win by one or two goals, and if that happened, then both West Germany and Austria go through. Um, yeah, a draw would have sent West Germany out. A big win for West Germany would have sent Austria out. So, you know, this was this was really kind of the situation where after 10 minutes, West Germany took the lead and then the remaining 80 minutes was, you know, basically a bit of a non-aggression pact, really, as it, as it is often referred to, I think, uh, I think by, by FIFA. Um, but... Yeah, it's, it's also got the nickname the disgrace of Gijón, where this match was played um, in 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 Spain, and um, and yeah, I've, I've, and you know one of the motivations this podcast really was was obviously this game um, in particular, and and the and the kind of the effect that this had on Algerian football going forward, because it you know the the fact that this game wasn't played fairly. Um, and you know that that last eighty minutes was was a was a disgrace, and and, and anybody who views the footage, I'm sure would would agree. Um, you know, neither team were were really prepared, and and you had the and you had the Spanish fans in, in the ground booing the team, um, the Algerian fans, you know, waving uh, notes and and burning <laughs> burning notes, um, and uh, but also moreover you had the Austrian and West Germany fans also 
join in with some of this. Like they were also kind of shocked by the behaviour of their of their own players in this game and, and, and kind of ashamed by it. What was the reaction in Algeria to, to this match and, and, and how is it seen to this day? Yeah, it's definitely, uh, like you said, it's considered a disgrace and it's still, you know, as soon as you mention Germany or you mentioned the World Cup, that's the first thing that comes up. Um, at the 2014 World Cup, we faced Germany and, and a lot of people were talking about, I was in Brazil, and a lot of people there, as soon as we found out we're, uh, we're going to face Germany, you know, first thing everybody mentioned is we're going to get revenge for what they did to us in 1982. Uh, so it's definitely uh, it's definitely something that's on the minds of, of a lot of people. Like, nobody's forgotten about it. And it's really unfortunate that FIFA waited until 1982 to put that rule in place. Because you would think that that situation would have come up before that, well, it, you know, it would have forced... Yeah, this is part of a disgrace for me because four years earlier, of course, you had a situation Argentina, where, yeah, with Argentina uh, needing to beat Peru by five goals, I think it was, and, that, and they ended up winning um, 6-0. So, you know, that was the chance then, really. But obviously the format changed for the 1982 World Cup in, in, in the fact that, it, you know, it moved to... Um, 24 teams, didn't it? Yeah, it was just 16 in in 1978. Although the although the format did actually remain fairly similar, I, I think the fact that they had just basically focused on you, the first round was a group stage, the second round was a group stage. That remained in place for 82. Although in 82 you had um, you you had groups of three rather than four in, in in that second in that second round and and I think in in all that mess of trying to figure that out uh, they forgot about just doing the basics in the in the first group stage of just having teams playing at the same time um, in 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 the last round of matches um, it seems like a huge oversight but I think we should add here that this 1982 World Cup, was a World Cup which was sort of besieged really by administration problems from start to finish. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a draw for this World Cup, but the, the draw for it is hilariously bad. Um, it features um, Spanish uh, school students um, drawing the balls out and, and the balls come open. Some of the wrong balls are put in the in the wrong places. You see FIFA delegates sort of telling off these Spanish uh, school children at one point for getting it wrong. Ah, oh, it's just it, it's just a complete mess. So, yeah, this this eighty two World Cup was was a bit of a line in the sand really for 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 the FIFA World Cup in terms of I think from that point onwards they made sure that. It was a lot fairer, and the administration was a lot better for the tournaments thereafter. Yeah, and as you, as I think you're probably correct to mention the 1978 result. Um, I think people were, were maybe a little shocked that they hadn't changed the the, the rules back then. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, people, I mean, Algerian media were suspicious that they were gonna that they were gonna play out a result that was uh, mutually favorable to both sides. And eventually, that's that's what happened. I've actually never watched that match. I've seen passages, but you know, you see players sometimes 
standing around with the ball for 15, 20 seconds, looking to the left and then to the right, and then repeating that process six or seven times before making a sideways, you know, five-yard sideways pass. Um, it's disgraceful. It's not, it's not something that's been completely ruled out of football. Actually, I think in 2010, Algeria was playing an African Cup of Nations match, uh, final match of the group stages, and uh, it was against Angola. And we both needed a draw, and it was nil-nil. And I think that I think both sides took foot off the gas then. So it's not something that you can completely rule out. But I think the rule change uh, after, where having obviously the, the final match of the group stages being played at the same time, is was a necessary amendment to to the rules of the game. Um, in Algeria, I think people were were obviously there was probably conflicting emotions. People were very angry, obviously, because they had, they felt like they were being cheated. They were hoping that FIFA would do something about it. And at the same time, there was, I think, a real sense of pride that, look, these two European nations, these one of them being a, an absolute powerhouse, are having to cheat to kick us out. And look, we're, and that, we're the first African team to win two. People were still very proud of this team. First African nation to win two games at a World Cup. Uh, we had we've shown that Algerians can play very good technical football at the highest stage. So I think there was definitely conflicting emotions, but there's no denying that this left a real indelible mark, I think, on, on the soul of Algerian football. That wasn't really an exercise until 2014 when we finally made it to the second round of, of the World Cup. Yeah. Only to be, unfortunately, beaten by Germany of, of all the teams. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> what's funny is that, I, I think, what's curious is that, you know, um, with Germany, it's it's a funny uh, it's a funny matchup for the Algerian national team because uh, Walid knows this. We we actually beat Germany in the in the 1960s as well. Um, I think it was 1963 or 1964. It was one of the first matches that the Algerian national team had played since independence. I think it was the third or fourth match, and most of the players that could compose the Algerian national team were players that left that were left over from the FLN team, and uh, the the German team was. Very strong. Um, they came over with their best players, and they lost two uh, 0 two 0 or two one, two 0 So I think it was, I think it was even more incredible that I think they were um, underestimating the Algerian side in 1982. And in 2014, they nearly made the same error because I think Oliver Kahn came out and said, "I don't see how this Algerian national team can hurt us." Uh, just 24 hours before Algeria had played Germany again, so um, we nearly pulled it off in 2014. And you had the same emotions of, um, you know, sadness, but also pride that this Algerian national team pushed the eventual world champions to uh, extra time and, and a, a narrow, slim one-goal victory. Um, but yeah, I think you could definitely say that the Algerian national team is a sort of a sort of bogey team for the Germans. Um, a lot of people look at the Algerian national team as, you know, the team that beat Germany at the 1982 World Cup and then declined in 1986 and then came back again in 2010. But uh, it should be noted as well that between 1980 and 1990, um, it really is the golden generation of Algerian football. Um, we reached the semifinals of the African Cup, um, I believe, five out of six times. So there were six African Cups from 1980 to 1990. We reached this, at least the semifinals five times. We reached the finals twice. And we finally won it in 1990 on home soil. Uh, we lost the 1980 uh, against Nigeria. But it was really a generation that, you know, that 10 years of just being one of the top African teams, uh, constantly being a favorite to win the African Cup and qualify for the World Cup as well. And 1990, we, we missed out on qualifying. Uh, it was a very tense uh, qualifier versus Egypt. So, um, you know, that, that whole 10-year period 
was very successful, even though a lot of people from the outside might only recognize the accomplishments in 1982. And and we should also mention that I think Algerian clubs won on the domestic club scene. I think Algerian uh, clubs won two Champions Leagues and made it to a third final um, in 1989. So, like what said, hugely successful decade for Algerian football, and one that I think still probably doesn't get enough respect. Uh, internationally and I think even domestically because some of those players were really, I think, world-class players. Uh, somebody like Lakhtar Belloumi, as we, we, we spoke about him, I think, very briefly here, and because he never played in Europe, um, I think people might know his name, but maybe they've never seen him play. or They, they, they really, I think, question themselves and say, how good could he have really been? And uh, since quarantine started, I think I've watched three hours of, of pure Lakhtar Belloumi footage, and I, don't, I, th- I can see, I, I always knew that he was the best Algerian player ever. And I think now it's just, the, the more you watch him, the more you fall in love with his style of play. And I think, I, I say that and I, I maintain that he's, in my opinion, a better player than Rabah Major, better player than, than Riyad Mahrez. And again, for, for the young generation, they might not understand that, but go back and really watch that footage. Go, go back and watch the first 20 minutes of the Cap Champions League final in 1989 when MC Oran played against Raja Casablanca. He was... One, the most technical player we've ever had. He's just a central midfielder that had perfect awareness, always knew where defenders were closing him down from, great touch on the ball, could pass, could score, just a, a really great player. And this team was chock full of talent like that, that maybe were not as good as Bellumi. They didn't have the respect that Bellumi had, but were definitely good enough. But just because maybe they never played abroad, they never got the respect that they deserved. So uh, anybody that has time to do a deep dive on that Algerian team of the 80s is going to find a lot of great players that they discover. And there's also a lot of players that because Bellumi was so good, because Maja were so good, they never even got a chance to shine. Uh, you mentioned that we won two Champions League. We actually won three, 1981, 1988, and 1990. Uh, the 1988 team was won by Slaif. And Slaif was actually playing in the second division in Algeria. They're the only team in world football to win a continental uh, competition while playing in the second division. And that just shows you how much talent there was in the Algerian League at the time that a club that could play in the second, that got relegated to the second division would go on to win the African Cup. So th- there was a ton of players that they never got their chance because Belumi was was such a good player. And even when you talk to those players, I've talked to some, you know, former internationals, and they tell you that we were good, but, you know, Belumi is the one name that a lot of them will mention. They'll be like, he was so much better. He was so good. And uh, unfortunately, he's not a name that that's known um, outside of maybe, you know, the, the connoisseurs of African football, even though he was the African player of the year in 1981. But he, he doesn't get the, the respect he deserves because he never played in Europe, because his whole career was spent playing in Algeria. Yeah, so, you know, fo- following this this game between Austria and West Germany in 82, you know, there was calls from all over the world for for, for either West Germany or, or Austria or both of them to be kicked out. Um, it didn't come to pass, partly because the vice president of FIFA at the time was a German, which uh, which wouldn't have helped their cause. Um, I, I did see an interview with uh, with Merza Kane, um, who who said that you know the Algerian players um, took some pride in it. You know they just saw it as you know two two of the European um, powers having to kind of you know, um, 
debasing themselves in order to eliminate us was a tribute to Algeria, was his actual quote. Uh, they progressed with dishonour. We went out with our heads held high. So, you know, that, that was kind of the view, I guess, of some of the Al Algerian players. I guess a lot of them were probably a lot more angry than that. But in, in, the, in the years that followed um, for, for Algerian football, um, you did qualify for, Algeria did qualify for the 1986 World Cup. Um, and that World Cup didn't go quite as well. Um, and but then it then it was a long wait until 2010, wasn't it? Until you were back on on the on the World Cup scene again. Yeah, the 1986 and 2010, I would say, are somewhat similar. Uh, they weren't as talented as either the 82 team or the 2014 team, and both of them were marred with. Uh, somewhat bizarre selections leading up to the uh, leading up to the final tournament. So players that, that participated in the qualifiers getting dropped for new players. Uh, so both of those were disappointments until until the 2014 uh, team, where obviously we reached the second round for the first time ever. Yeah, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it was the same coach who I think is should be respected, and he's probably one of the better Algerian coaches, Rabbi Sadan. But he was in charge in 1986 and in 2010. And as Walid said, you know, leading up to both of those tournaments, he sort of made changes to the side that, to the players that really qualified um, the, the nation to the World Cup, he would switch them out with, you know, most of the time, you know, French Algerian players that were coming in uh, at the last second to, to play a major tournament. And that caused, if you listen to players from, from you know, the 1986 team and the 2010 team, they'll talk about team chemistry problems because of those late changes. Um, I think it's a little unfair to say it was a catastrophic tournament in '86 because we had Brazil and Spain in our in our group. Uh, drew with Northern Ireland, which is which is I think an okay result. Um, 2010, I think, is the one tournament that you really felt like, wow, we could have done something a little better here. But in between the two, there was a huge civil war in Algeria, um, with when hundreds of thousands of people died, and football was really put on the back burner for a very long time. So I think that explains probably. It's it's a lazy take, but it probably it's fairly accurate. I think to say that it could explain a large part why the uh, Algerian football sort of lagged behind for such a long time, and it wasn't really until you know 2007, 2008 that the Algerian national team I think started to be respected again on the continental and the international level. By Alan Brandon. This word, Walid Ziani and Pia Hazai. This has been World Football Window Production. Thank you for listening.